0: Hi, everyone. This is Jeannie Poole. I'm the editor in chief of the Heart Rhythm O2 Journal, and welcome to the May 2023 issue podcast. We have a great lineup of articles for the May issue. First up is a paper titled Racial, Ethnic, and Sex Differences in Safety Outcomes in Atrial Fibrillation and Atrial Flutter Related Acute Healthcare Utilization After Catheter Ablation of Atrial Fibrillation. This is by Dr. Larry Jackson and colleagues. This is a very nice study that looks at racial, ethnic, and sex-specific differences for complications and acute health utilization related to catheter ablation. This is a retrospective analysis that used CMS standard analytic files to identify acute healthcare utilization within one year of catheter ablation. A total of 95,394 patients were analyzed for the complication outcome and 68,408 for the healthcare utilization outcome. The demographics were 95% white, leaving a relatively small percentage for the racial analysis. On the other hand, 48% were women, a more balanced, split by sex. Complications in women were found to only be slightly higher than in the men, with an adjusted hazard ratio of 1.07. Black and Asian patients had a lower utilization compared with white patients, especially Asian men, who had a substantially lower risk, with an adjusted hazard ratio of 0.58. The author's key findings are, first, that in this contemporary cohort of U.S. patients 65 years of age and older who underwent AFib and atrial flutter ablation, women had a 7% higher risk of complications compared with men, which stemmed primarily from a higher rate of complications amongst white women. Second, atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter-related acute healthcare utilization in the post-blanking one-year period was 13% to 33% lower in black asian and hispanic individuals compared with white individuals and finally the most common complications post atrial fib and atrial flutter ablation were congestive heart failure urinary tract infections thromboembolism and pacemaker insertions the second paper up is also very interesting it is titled long-term outcomes of successful left atrial appendage occlusion with focus on stroke prevention 10-year follow-up of a single center registering by Dr. Monique Mars and colleagues. These authors looked at long-term patient outcomes after successful left atrial appendage occlusion in a single center registry. The authors looked at consecutive patients who had undergone a percutaneous LAAO. They then identified thromboembolic and major bleeding event rates and compared them to the expected rates using the CHADS, VASC, and HASBLED scores. They also looked at the use of antiplatelets and oral anticoagulant use during the follow-up period. They identified 230 patients, of whom 38% were women, with a mean age of 69, a CHADS-VAS score of 3.9, and a has bled score of 2.9. 218 patients, or 94.7%, had a successful implant with a follow-up of 5.2 years. A little over half of the patients also had concomitant AF ablation. In terms of the outcomes, 50 thromboembolic complications occurred, of which 24 were ischemic stroke and the other 26 were TIAs. These were observed in 18% of the 218 patients. When compared with the expected stroke rates using the CHADS-VASc score, the ischemic stroke rate of 2.1 per 100 patient years represented a 66% relative risk reduction. Device-related thrombus occurred in 2% of the patients. In terms of bleeding complications, 65 non-procedural major bleeding complications occurred in 24 or 11% of the 218 patients. When compared with the expected risk using the has bled score, the major bleeding rate of 5.7 per 100 patient years was similar in patients taking oral anticoagulants. And at final follow-up, 71% of the patients were on single or no antiplatelets or anticoagulants. The author's key findings are first that this prospective registry describes one of the longest published follow-up durations after left atrial appendage occlusion in everyday clinical practice. An event rate of 2.1 ischemic strokes per 100 patient years and a high-risk population for developing stroke supports successful left atrial appendage occlusion, remaining effective during the long-term. Second, a combination of LAAO with catheter ablation for atrial fibrillation was frequently performed. The occurrence of ischemic stroke and major bleeding during follow-up was non-significantly different to the standalone LAAO group when adjusted for confounders. Next, the most common indication for LAAO, based on this cohort, is previous bleeding. At the end of the study, 71% of all the patients were not using oral anticoagulation, illustrating that LAAO is a viable option for patients with competing risks of stroke and bleeding and the need to avoid long-term anticoagulation. And finally, LAAO was also observed to be combined with anticoagulation for various reasons. And the authors state that this observation raises questions and should be further evaluated. The next paper looks at the effect of gender on atrial fibrillation ablation outcomes using a propensity score matched analysis by Dr. Mohammed Al-Sawadi and colleagues. The objective of this study was to evaluate gender differences on AF ablation outcomes. The authors looked at 1,568 AF ablations from a single tertiary center. The number of patients was 1,412, of whom 34% were female, and the procedures were performed between 2013 and 2021. The follow-up was at least 6 months for all, with a mean of 34 months. The outcome measures included AF recurrence, complications, and emergency department visits or hospitalizations and were assessed using a multivariate logistic regression analysis with propensity score matching. The mean age of the cohort was 64 years, with a mean body mass index of 31. In 77% of the patients, the procedure was their first, and 27% of the patients had persistent AF. There was no difference in AF recurrence when stratified by gender with a hazard ratio of 1.15. For the propensity matched cohorts who were matched for age, AF type, hypertension, diabetes, and BMI in a cohort of 5,888 patients, the authors did not identify a difference by gender for AF recurrence or procedural related complications. They did observe that persistent AF patients had a higher recurrence rate with a hazard ratio of 1.54, and along with age, were more likely to require substrate modification. No differences were observed by gender. The author's key findings were, first, that higher rates of atrial tachycardia and lower rates of atrial flutter in female patients compared to male patients were reported. However, there is no difference in overall safety or efficacy outcomes between genders after AF ablation. Second, after propensity score matching, there was no difference in AF recurrence or procedure-related complications by gender. And finally, persistent AF and age greater than 70 years were associated with the need for additional substrate modification with no difference based on gender. The next paper is a design paper for the ADVENT trial. This is a randomized controlled trial pulsed field ablation versus standard of care ablation for paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. The first author of this paper is Vivek Reddy and colleagues. The background supporting the need for this trial is based upon the known thermal risks of PBI on non-target tissues, and pulsed field ablation may reduce this risk due to preferential ablation of the myocardial tissue and reducing collateral damage. The catheter used in this study is a multi electrode pentaspline catheter, with prior studies demonstrating safety and efficacy for paroxysmal atrial fibrillation in single-arm, first-in-human studies. The trial is planned as a non-inferiority, single-blinded, randomized clinical trial comparing PFA to RF or cryoablation ablation. The patient population are those with drug-resistant AF. Each enrollment site will use all RF or all cryoablation ablation as its control set. The sample size is adaptively determined and based upon Bayesian statistical methods, with a target between 350 and 750 individuals enrolled. The basis of all procedures will be pvi and the patients will be followed for at least 12 months the first one to three sequentially enrolled subjects at each site will be non-randomized roll-in patients treated with the pfa system to confirm adequate experience with the pfa catheter and after that patients will be randomized one-to-one to pfa or thermal ablation the primary efficacy endpoint is a composite of acute procedural success and freedom from any documented atrial arrhythmia recurrence repeat ablation or use of antiarrhythmic drugs after a three-month post-ablation blanking period. The primary safety endpoint is a composite of defined acute and chronic device and procedure-related serious adverse events. The authors have also planned a subgroup of up to 80 sequentially-enrolled randomized subjects at selected sites to undergo post-procedural brain MRI scans for the assessment of silent cerebral events and silent cerebral lesions. These will all be analyzed at the core lab. The author's key points are first that pulse field ablation is a novel, non-thermal ablation modality for performing pulmonary vein isolation and paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, and that well-established ablation modalities, that is RF ablation or cryoablation, ablation, rely on the propagation of ablative thermal waves that can inadvertently impact structures adjacent to the myocardium. They also note that there is limited data in which PFA is prospectively compared with either RFA or, cryo balloon, and to date, there have been no randomized trials comparing the safety and efficacy of PFA against these other established ablation modalities. We congratulate the authors for the design of this important trial and we look forward to the results. The next paper is an interesting case report. The title is Transmural Lesion Formation After Left Atrial Roof Cryo Balloon Ablation Insight from Simultaneous High Density Epicardial Mapping. The first author is hiroyuki kato and colleagues the authors present a case of persistent atrial fibrillation and evaluate simultaneous endo and epicardial mapping before and after pvi plus a roofline ablation the key take-home messages that the authors note from this case include first although endocardial and epicardial asynchronous activation may be an important feature for arrhythmia maintenance the extent of the lesion reaching the epicardial surface and transmural block after cryo ablation roofline ablation have not been well evaluated. They then note that this is the first case report demonstrating transmural lesion formation and complete conduction block that was confirmed by endocardial and epicardial mapping after cryo balloon roofline ablation. And finally, that a roofline block can be readily achieved using a cryo balloon and thus demonstrates the efficacy of cryo balloons in suppressing residual epicardial gaps and arrhythmogenesis. The next paper is a brief report it is titled cardiac resynchronization therapy device implantation using suspended personal radiation protection system examination of radiation protective effectiveness by dosimetry at 51 exposure sites first author is Rael ito and colleagues in this report the authors note that a suspended personal radiation protection system or zero gravity is considered a novel approach and can overcome the concerns of conventional exposure protection devices because it is a hanging type of protective equipment and reduces the weight burden on the physician despite the sufficient lead content in the face shields and the shoulders. They state that their study examines the radiation protection effectiveness of the system by dosimetry at 51 exposure sites during cardiac resynchronization therapy device implantation procedures. They note that the absorbed doses inside this system, including the head, were below the lower limit of detection and suggested a high radiation protection efficacy of this system. They conclude that the zero-gravity system achieved high exposure protection for physicians even during cardiac resynchronization therapy device implantation. The final paper is titled Quality Improvement Initiative to Optimize Heart Failure Treatment in Patients with Cardiac Implantable Electronic Devices. By Samane Salamian and colleagues. These authors previously looked at the eligibility, uptake, dose, and contraindications to guideline directed medical therapy in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction patients who had ICDs or CRTs. Two device clinics had participated in that trial in Vancouver, Canada. The authors identified that the uptake of angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitors and sodium-glucose cotransporter 2 inhibitors was lower than expected, with greater than 50% of the patients not achieving prescribed target doses. This previously published observational trial formed the basis for implementing this report, which is a quality improvement program for optimizing the use of GDMT in patients in device clinics. Using the same patient population criteria, adults greater than 18 years of age with ICDs or CRTs were included from two sites. A trained clinical specialist performed chart review and the data was entered in a red cap. The study included a pre-intervention and intervention cohorts. The intervention group included specific referral, investigations, and prescriptions or deferring the patient to a specialist who would co-manage the patient. The pre-intervention cohort included 227 visits and 207 patients, and the intervention cohort included 599 visits and 449 patients. The authors found that the proportion of patients on optimal baseline therapy on arrival at the clinic improved over the study time from 16 to 26%. The proportion of patients either receiving an intervention, referral, investigations, or prescriptions, or having care deferred to a specialist co-managing the patient, such as cardiology, heart failure, clinic, etc., was pretty constant without any major changes comparing before and after the reminders. On the other hand, prior to the reminders, a quarter of the patients had no intervention either without explanation or because they were considered to be clinically stable. With reminders, this proportion decreased to 10%. The response rate, that is, referral investigations and prescriptions, averaged 45% during the first half of the intervention period and increased to 55% during the second half. And finally, comparing post-reminder care against the pre-intervention cohort, the proportion of patients with no action decreased across all physicians. The authors concluded that despite significant improvement over time in prescription and titration of quadruple therapy in patients with ICD and CRT with HEFREF, Significant care gaps exist. A system of reminders changed practice patterns in some care providers and the proportion of patients without any intervention did decrease over time. The final entries for the May issue are a letter to the editor in response to that letter regarding the previously published paper titled Management of Inappropriate Sinus Tachycardia During Pregnancy. This completes my summary of the HRO2 May 2023 issue. Thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you next month.